The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Lisa. So if you were here uh, last week, you know that uh, Christ Pres is the church where if it rains, we worship outside, and if it's really sunny, we worship inside. So it's good to be uh, indoors uh, with you. Welcome those of you here with us in the sanctuary, also the many of you who are out uh, in the breezeway. Hello out there. I can see the backs of your heads and also those who are joining us from home and uh, from other places on fall break. So uh, we are in a, in a series. We're, we're toward the beginning of a series on the book of Acts, and uh, it's called Jesus and His People. And uh, reminded us a few weeks ago that uh, the book of Acts begins with the statement that Acts is about what Jesus continued to do after Jesus has risen from the dead, ascended into heaven with the Father. Uh, But now Jesus, the book of Acts tells us, lives in his people. We are now the physical embodiment of Christ in the world, filled with the Holy Spirit, called to continue his ministry. And the text in front of us is a a beautiful picture of how the ministry of Jesus Christ as physician, as healer, continues through his people. So uh, Abigail von Buren uh, of Dear Abbey, of the Dear Abbey column, once said this, the church is not a museum for saints, but is a hospital for sinners. You could also say that it's a, a, a hospital or a refuge for sufferers. Luke writes with the unique perspective of a trained physician. Luke is a doctor, as many of you are here in um, what they call the Silicon Valley of Healthcare, Nashville, Tennessee. And so if you go back to a previous writing of Luke in Luke's gospel, which is sort of the prelude to the book of Acts, in chapter 5, Jesus is interrogated by the religious gatekeepers, and they ask him publicly, why do you eat with tax collectors 
and sinners. That's a, a question with an exclamation point at the end, and it's a statement. It's a criticism that Jesus would associate with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus' answer was this, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call the right, I have, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so wherever there's sin and suffering, Jesus and, and now the people of Jesus, the body of Christ, don't retreat from sin and suffering, but, but move toward it like a moth to a flame. And so, so this, this text is a picture of that, where we see three things, the agony of defeat, the gifts we all can give, and then finally, the ankles that act like wings. So, so let's start with the agony of defeat. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, two of Jesus' closest friends and apostles, they encounter a man who has had a lifetime uh, disability. And because of his lifetime disability, he is carrying this identity uh, uh, that, that, that he assumes about himself. I am defective. I am less than. I don't belong. I am an outsider. And, and of course, he's treated that way. Everybody around him, it seems in the community, agrees with this self-assessment. So he acts the part of who he believes he is because of this disability that he was born with. And so Luke, the doctor, also filled with the Holy Spirit, is dialed in. And he notices three details. One, that the man's problem, as I've already said, is congenital. He has been, it says, lame all the way back from his birth. He was born disabled. All of his life, he's been immobilized. All of his life, he's been held back from living the life that he's watching everybody else around him live. There, there are very intense shame dynamics that, that exist for this man because of the way that he was born. There's this unspoken assumption in that time and day and in that religious culture that he was under a curse. If you're a gospel reader, if you're a Bible reader, you may remember an episode where, uh, where there was a blind man and one of Jesus' disciples said to Jesus, who was it that committed a sin? that made this man born blind? Was it this man or was it his parents? It's this strange assumption that finds no basis in scripture and, and yet became ingrained in the culture that if there is a defect, it means that either you've done something wrong or somebody who cares about you has something, done something wrong. And this is God's punishment. This is God's curse toward you. And so he's carrying around what you, what you could call cultural shame. And he's also demoralized. Notice that this man is completely dependent on other people to carry him to the gate of the temple so he can beg for money, for his support. He's completely dependent on other people to carry him if he needs to get somewhere. And he's also completely dependent on others to provide for him where he lacks provision and care. He has zero agency. He has zero power. And to, to add insult to injury, the people who carry him and put him outside the temple put him outside a gate. And, and did you notice the detail of what that gate was called? It's a gate called beautiful. 
So he's, he's put outside this gate that he can't walk through and it's a beautiful gate and he's watching everybody else walk through it into the house of worship where he was not allowed because he was regarded as unclean because of his disability. The ancient historian, ancient Jewish historian Josephus described the gate called beautiful in this way. It was made of Corinthian brass, more stunning than gold or silver, 75 feet high with huge double doors. And so every day this man would watch happy, able-bodied families walk into the temple through that beautiful gate. A gate he wasn't allowed to pass through into a temple that he was not allowed to go into because his disability rendered him unclean. Reading this text reminded me of this song by one of my favorite college bands, R.E.M. That'll date me a little bit. It'll tell you how old I am. So R.E.M. has this, this song that is presumably sung by a man who is experiencing loneliness, lonely in a crowd of people. And the lyric sort of whimsically and sarcastically uh, talks about shiny, happy people holding hands and, and, and just how, how other people's shininess and other people's happiness mocks his own isolation and mocks his own loneliness and misery. It's, it's, it's like the feeling you get when you're scrolling on Facebook or Instagram and you notice that last night there was a party and several of your friends were there and you weren't invited. I felt this way when I found out last night that the Rolling Stones were here. I didn't get invited to the Rolling Stones party. That's, that's a bucket list item that I will probably never check off the list. But it's more serious when you, when you see a gathering of, of people that you thought were your, your friends who cared about you, who loved you, who wanted to include you, and you find out, oh my goodness, the eight of them got together and I didn't even get invited and it was right down the street. Or it's the friend group that, that, that parades you know, their, their love for one another and you wish you were part of that friend group and, and yet you're left out. So, so take that feeling you get when you're scrolling social media, multiply it by about a thousand and this is the feeling that this man gets every single day. I am the left out one. You know, added to this is a heartbreaking detail. You notice that a group of people carry him everywhere he goes but then they drop him off. Nobody sits with him. Nobody tends to him. Nobody befriends him. They just drop him off and then they go their merry way, keeping him socially isolated. So, so Deepa Narayan uh, edited this uh, series of books called Voices of the Poor. And Voices of the Poor is essentially a series of interviews with and storytelling by people who live in material poverty, homeless people, people who are chronically and perpetually dependent on the system, et cetera. And one of, one of, the, one of the voices of the poor people highlighted in Voices of the Poor said this, for a poor person like me, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. So based on this and other quotes like it, Narayan, the editor, 
concludes this, that the worst kind of poverty, which is confirmed by virtually every poor person I talk to, is more relational than it is material. Poverty is more social than it is economic. And here's the thing, that kind of poverty can be experienced by a billionaire just as well as it can be experienced by somebody who has nothing. And this, this, this agony, this agony of loneliness, this agony of isolation was actually an agony that was made possible in paradise. Remember, God said into paradise, it's not good. It is not good for Adam, for Adam, for humanity to be alone. The agony of defeat, it's it's deeply connected to this man's isolation and also to ours. But then we see the gifts that we all can give. This is what it means to be the body of Christ. A couple of things. Before I get to those two things, there are some things that we can't give. Notice when, when the man begs for money, Peter says, I have no silver. I have no gold. And, and this is an indication of, 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 a, of a fact. And it's a disappointing fact to many of us. The people of God, Christians, and Christian churches can't always give you or me what we want. The church and Christians sometimes have no power to make unhappy, dissatisfied people happy and satisfied with whatever we're looking for in our unhappiness and dissatisfaction. Wynne Collier was recently quoted as saying that churches can sometimes be lightning rods for everybody's anxiety and discontent. Some things we can't give. Silver and gold, Peter says, I have none. Christians and churches cannot be the answer to or guarantee of a cure for everything that people ask for, hope for, or expect. But what we can do is we can walk with anyone. We can come alongside anyone who is struggling, including those who are lonely, isolated, and immobilized. And I would say especially those who are lonely, isolated, and immobilized. People with hard marriages, people with hurting children, people who are having a hard time at work or who are, have fallen on hard times economically, people who are in relational conflict or hurt, people who have been rejected, people who are experiencing grief, people who are undergoing sickness, people who have committed a crime, people who feel guilty, people who are guilty. While we cannot fix those problems, we can show up in those problems and come alongside so that nobody has to bear those burdens, some of them self-inflicted, some of them inflicted by the universe, alone. So what we can give is two things. First, we can give ourselves. Notice in verse four that Peter and John directed their gaze, their gaze, their eye contact at the man and said to him, look at us, look at us, we see you. Now, see us. We're going to extend you an invitation that perhaps nobody ever has. Let's be friends. Let's be in community together with each other. Must have been shocking to the man that the first gift that Peter and John gave him was eye contact and the invitation to look back. 
This is one of the things that's unique about Christian community. Talked about this some last week at our 40th anniversary. Christian community is non-performative. You don't have to perform. You don't have to measure up. You don't have to reach a certain status in order to belong. The record of scripture over and over and over again belabors that point. It is non-performative inclusion. It is non-performative involvement. Our community, the Christian community here and everywhere, when it's operating properly, according to the way that Christ set it up, is based on grace. You belong because you belong. You belong because Christ has welcomed you. You belong because Christ has done all of the performing necessary in order to get you over the bar of entry. It's non-performative. Anyone can belong. And so, so one of the wars, okay, so the, the church in, in, in some of the theology books is called the church militant. We fight against some things. C.S. Lewis said that Christianity is a fighting religion. One of the, one of the primary wars that Christians and churches are, are called to engage constantly is the war against loneliness, the war against relational poverty. That's part of our calling. That's part of our calling as a church. That's part of every individual's calling who belongs to Christ, a war against poverty. So Rebecca McLaughlin, who's a Cambridge scholar, said this about her family's commitment regarding the local church. She says, we go to church, not just for what we can get out of it, but because what we know we've been called to do and to be for others. One example is this, she says, an alone person in our gathering is an emergency. That's what we've taught our kids. That's how we've committed to behave. If we notice somebody in church alone, it's an emergency. Second, friends can wait. The alone person is priority over my friends here. Third, Introduce a newcomer every week to someone else. That's just part of their family mission. This is something, by the way, that Christ Pres has historically done wonderfully. Something worth keeping up. Something worth leaning into. Something worth getting back to if we've been away from that practice perhaps for a while in this weird time that we've been in the last couple of years. But the church of Jesus Christ is a place where no soul should be isolated no sinner should be canceled. This unbroken eye contact, you, you, you might call it another kind of beautiful gate, a relational gate, a beautiful gate to redemption, this eye contact that, that Peter and John offer to this, to this man. It's an invitation to tell the truth about ourselves. It's an invitation to have solidarity with each other. This is why the, you know, the recovery groups work so well. It's why AA is so effective. Recovery groups tell, tell more truth about themselves than people in churches often do. I am so-and-so, and, and this is my addiction. And then the rest of the room looks at them and say, oh, us too. 
C.S. Lewis says that's how friends are formed. That's how community happens. One person looks at another and says, oh, you too? And then the friendship launches. So many of the best, strongest, longest lasting friendship happen when somebody says, oh, you too, about a shared weakness, about a shared wound. You too? Gospel culture is non-performative. It's like the hymn we sing reminds us, come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. All the fitness he requires is to feel our need of him. So just allow me before I move on here just to poke a little bit. The past year and a half, and it's understandable, but it's happened. There are some who have re-engaged all forms of community life except church life because church has become easy and convenient and homebound. What I want to encourage, if you fit into that category where you're engaging all other forms of community life, but you've kind of settled in. I was talking to somebody last night. They said, oh yeah, we know several people who said they just find it more comfortable and more convenient. They're still with us. They're still here. But they worship at home. It's just easier. It's more convenient. There's no, t- there's no schedule to submit to anymore. I want to I encourage those people with, with a poke. You're foregoing a significant part of your calling. A significant part of your calling is to show up for others. It's wonderful that we, have, we live in a technological season now where the church can show up in your home if you're not safe or if you're traveling, but there's a a reciprocal uh, calling where where individuals are actually, embodied individuals are actually what make the church. And so if you're engaging, if you're safe enough to engage all other forms of social and communal life, remember that. That an alone person in the church gathering is an emergency and you you could be part of the answer to that emergency. The other group I want to poke at a little bit is the people I hear from from all over the country. And it's flattering and also concerning. You've become our church. It's people from California, from Arizona, from the UK. And my answer is no, we haven't. Because if some crisis happens in your life, we're not gonna show up. We can't. Go local. Go local. That's one of the downsides of the technological age. Is it, is it, it potentially feeds a sort of consumerism that, that, that deceives people into thinking they're in community when they're not. There's no, no such thing as an online community, you guys. Community is embodied. It's people with people. It's eye contact. Look at us. We're looking at you. Look at us. Look. We're not looking at each other when we digitize community. It's one directional, which means it's consumption, not community, if we do it by choice. Now, again, this is in no way to shame or scold or, or confront those who are trying to be safe or those who are homebound and immobilized and can't get here. Whole different category. I'm preaching against consumption, not against safety. I hope, you, I hope we can agree on the difference. The other thing that we can give people besides ourselves is Christ. 
What no church can fix, Jesus can. Silver and gold I have none, but what I do have is the one who owns everything. What I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. It says that Peter took him by the hand and raised him up. You know, Thomas Walker put it this way. He said, the power was Christ's, but the hand was Peter's. Here we have a ministry of touch. No doubt Peter might have had in that moment the memory of when Jesus reached out to Jairus' daughter, touched her, and raised her up from her immobilized state. So there's the ministry of touch. There's also the ministry of humble association. Notice he didn't just say, I give you Jesus Christ. He says, I give you Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That poor, overlooked, obscure, ignored town, Nazareth, that Jesus chose to hail from to communicate loudly his association with the weak, the invisible, and those who are left out. It's from Nazareth. Disabled and immobilized in different ways. Despised and rejected in different ways. Excluded in different ways. No beautiful gates in Nazareth. And then thirdly, the ministry of healing. Rise. It's reminiscent of the statement about Aragorn and Lord of the Rings. The hands of the king are healing hands and that's how the rightful king will be known. Which brings us finally to the ankles that act like wings. So Luke, again, the doctor observes, verse seven, the man's ankles were made strong. Immediately he began walking, leaping and praising God. So as a staff here at Old Hickory Boulevard, we get together every Monday and we talk about the scripture that's coming up uh, in, in, in the coming Sunday. And this past Monday, Buzz Graham right there said, you know, it dawns on me, everybody else had to learn how to walk. This man who had never been taught to walk, this man who was born immobilized just suddenly gets up. He's not just walking, he's dancing. He didn't have to learn. Ordinary process is bypassed by a miracle. Now, of course, I know what you're thinking. Most people don't walk when you tell them to. You know, I've never called a, a person out of a wheelchair. Have you? Even in the name of Christ, I've never called a person out of a wheelchair. I, I've wished to be able to many times. Most people don't walk like this. And Jesus' answer to this is, oh, my child, not yet, but they will. Because this invitation to rise is a universal invitation. It is not just for the few. Every miracle, every miracle we see in the Bible and elsewhere is a return to life as it's meant to be. The theologian Jürgen Moltmann says this, the miracles we see in the gospels are not an interruption to the natural order, but are the restoration of the natural order. Back in seminary, uh, the beloved history professor, Dr. David Calhoun, this was at Covenant Theological Seminary years and years ago, decades actually, uh, was diagnosed with two cancers at the same time and it did not look good. His prognosis was not good and, and we held prayer gatherings for him and I remember one particular prayer gathering where the whole seminary community came together and Brian Chapel, the president of Covenant Seminary said, Let's please not pray, God, if it's your will, would you heal Dr. Calhoun? Let's pray instead, God, according to your will, heal 
Dr. Callan, not would you heal, because we know you will. Heal him according to your will. That could be now, that could be next month, that could be 10 years from now. And thankfully, Dr. Calhoun lived decades after that. But that healing might not come completely until the new heaven and the new earth, but it is healing. Right? As, as Lewis says, you know, all the life that we live now is prelude. Life as it's meant to be begins in the new heaven and earth, and it also continues there forever and ever. The last chapter is also the first chapter, and it's an everlasting chapter that never ends. You know, all over the world, there are billions of able-bodied people who are unhappy and committed to be that way. Likewise, all around the world, there are others who are physically disabled and immobilized and joyful. At CPC, I call this group of people the It Is Well Club. These are the people who sing It Is Well With My Soul the loudest. They tend to be people who have cancer, who are aging, who are widowed, who are disabled, who are economically stressed, vocationally frustrated, facing unspeakable loss, even loss like the death of a child. You may have seen my pastor videos. I send them out every now and then in a weekly email. You can get on that list if you're not on it already. And you may notice over my left shoulder, there's a sign that says, all sad things become untrue. That sign was sent to me as a gift on the one year anniversary of the death of a child in our church by that child's mother. And in the note that she included with that sign, she said this, Dear Scott, we wanted to give you this gift because you were the first one who taught us this truth. You explained that heaven will be like waking from a bad dream and all sad things becoming untrue. You reminded me that our son, at our son's funeral, you, you reminded me of that at our son's funeral and it brought me great comfort to think that the sadness on this earth will only serve to intensify the joy of heaven brings great hope. So thank you for reminding us of what God's word says about this. This isn't wishful thinking from a preacher. This is just a parrot repeating what the scriptures already say. It's right there and this is our invitation to the Lord's Supper. All sad things will come untrue. Revelation 21, Jesus says, and this is, this is Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus is, this is Jesus after reality, after the natural order is restored again when he comes and resurrects us, he says to us, rise from all of our disability and all of our brokenness and all the things that hold us back. He says to us, rise and all of us rise, not just some of us. This is what we will hear from him. I am making all things new. The old order of things has passed away. Everything is now new. I am making, that is a continuing verb which means every day is gonna be better than the day before. It means you're gonna be growing younger every day, not older, stronger every day, not weaker, healthier every day, not sicker. That is your future and mine to which the supper in front of us points. And so I'd like to transition to that.